Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Greetings, friends and family in Christ and all who are watching, greetings in the name of Jesus. As some of you know, uh, I just had major surgery almost exactly a week ago, and I just wanted to say thank you to all those who prayed for me and my family, uh, who sent me words of encouragement, who uh, were part of the meal train that, that gave to our uh, family uh, or are still doing that. Um, just so grateful for God's grace and love demonstrated through you during this time. Uh, in some ways, I, I come to you, I feel like Paul the Apostle in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, I come to you in weakness and fear and trembling uh, as I'm still in recovery mode, uh, but I'm strong enough to preach the gospel and, uh, and I, I am excited and coveted the opportunity to do that today and, and this weekend at Redeeming Hope. So um, anyway, again, just a big thank you to my family in Christ for all the ways that you've loved me and my family during this time. Uh, we are finishing up the first half of the series on Ephesians, as Josh mentioned, uh, the series in him. Uh, that, that phrase in him is the, the hallmark phrase of the way Paul taught the gospel, that we are accepted by God on the basis of position in Christ, not on the basis of our performance. And with this last message, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And the title of today's message is The Supremacy of Christ. Let's look at it. I'm reading out of the ESV. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse nine, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is God's word. Let's pray. And Father, we pray that you would fill us. As it says here, you fill all things, that you would fill your church here in Clarksville. You'd fill our hearts our families, our marriages, our relationships. Lord, our whole lives would just be saturated with a life of Jesus and a life of the Spirit. And we welcome you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Three things we're going to look at here in this text today. Number one, the lowliness of Christ. Number two, the supremacy of Christ. And then number three, okay, great, but what does that mean for us? It's one thing to look at these concepts and these truths, um, but there's a point in it. There's a purpose in it in our lives as we walk out our faith as followers of Jesus here in Clarksville. So let's look at this idea of the lowliness of Jesus. And we see that in verse nine, it says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And this is speaking of you know, what we call in theological terms, the incarnation, that Jesus, the eternal son, humbled himself by coming down to this world in the form of a child and he lived among us. Isn't that amazing that God lived among us? And the Bible says he was tempted in all manners such as we are and yet without sin. In other words, he knows tears, he knows pain, he knows the, the dust on his feet from the dirty roads of Galilee and Jerusalem. 
You know, most world, world religions claim that we have to go to God through our works, through our merits, through our performance or our character, or through self-imposed suffering, we climb to God. But the gospel says he came to us. What does it mean but that also he descended into the lower regions, the earth? You know, I've heard it said that God, God humbled himself in three ways for mankind, three ways. Number one, God became a man. I mean, wouldn't that be enough if he just stopped there and the creator became a creation? You know, the toy maker became a toy in a sense and he became a man and, and walked in this world. I mean, that would be humble enough of God to do that, but he didn't stop there. The second way that God humbled himself was he was born in lowly circumstances. I mean, he was born in a manger. He could have come as the emperor of Rome. He could have come as the chief priest. He could have come as some, you know, whatever, religious or political celebrity. No, he came and he was born next to animals. There wasn't even room in the inn for him. He was born in a poor rural family uh, of, of Israel, the son of a carpenter. And so he could have stopped there and, and the demonstration of that humility and love could make all of us wonder and worship at the humility and the love of God. But he didn't stop there. The third way that God humbled himself was Jesus Christ died the most brutal, humiliating death a man in that day could die when he died naked and bleeding on a Roman cross. Now, why? Why would God come like this? Why would God design it like this? He could have come any way that he wanted to come. And here's why. Here's why. So that nobody can say, he didn't come for me. Nobody, you know, strung out on the streets of Clarksville, you know, uh, no drug addict, no prostitute, you know, no person in the poorest of circumstances, in the most painful of trials. Nobody can say, he didn't come for me. He understands. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to be forgotten. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. That we might become rich, he became poor. And who would have guessed it, right? Who would have guessed it? God has a humble heart. I mean, you look at the story of the Old Testament and there's this revealing of God and what he's like. And there's almost a sense of, they weren't sure what he was like. Certainly no one suspected that he would be like this, that he'd be this humble. I mean, listen how Jesus describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. God's like that? I mean, it's stunning, really, especially when you consider maybe how people would naturally view God or how God is even viewed in other religions, this sort of distant, scary, you know, uh, bearded thunderbolt God, you know? No, Jesus said, you know what? You know what I'm actually like? I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. So just consider the lowliness of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and in that, the love of Jesus and the grace of God in Christ the Son. Two, the supremacy of, of Christ. We see that also in this text. In verse eight, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. <laughs> I love this. He led a host of captives. This is a picture of a conquering king returning home after defeating an army and taking captives. 
That's what this is saying. So really this illustration is an ancient one and they may have understood its meaning maybe even more than we do today in modern terms. Paul actually uses the same illustration again in the book of Colossians chapter two and 52 verse 15 when he says this, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I like how the New Living Translation uh, says that one. It says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And, and one of the ways this, this would be illustrated or thought of was that in ancient times, in the days of kings and wars, some conquering kings had this practice where they would take the enemy king and they would bring him to the capital city and they would set a time for a parade. Hey, just like a major league baseball world series parade or, you know, NFL, you know, conquering city wins the Super Bowl. They have this big parade and they take the trophy. To, it was like that, except it was a parade with the enemy king that they would strip down naked, tie him to a pole and put him on a cart and he would be pulled behind mules. And the mules would sort of walk down the main street of the capital conquering city. And all the people were encouraged to come out and look at this naked, humiliated king who threatened their families and threatened their city and threatened their lives. And he was put to open shame. And the people would look and go, that's the guy? That's the guy who threatened my family? <laughs> that's the guy who threatened my my city, that's the guy who threatened my people. Ha, 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 ha. And they just literally humiliate the guy. That's the picture. Listen to what it says. He disarmed rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. And back in our text today, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Ooh, getting those Holy Ghost goosebumps here. John Calvin said this in his commentary. God reduced his enemies to subjection, which was more fully accomplished in Christ than any other way. He has not only gained a complete victory over the devil and sin and death and all the power of hell, but out of rebels, he forms every day a willing people when he subdues by his word the obstinacy of our flesh. On the other hand, his enemies, to which class all wicked men belong, are held bound by chains of iron and are restrained by his power from exerting their fury beyond the limits to which he has assigned. I mean, it's, he's just saying God's in control. God rules and reigns over his creation, and he has subdued and, and subjected, his, subjected his enemies to his will. John Calvin is saying what Paul is saying, that Jesus defeated the demonic structure. And this is the second time he's mentioned it in this book. Just a glimpse back to chapter three, he mentioned this idea again of how Jesus defeated the demonic structure. Listen to Ephesians 3, eight through 10. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There it is again. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that God's plan for the church is to bring to light that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is speaking of the demonic hierarchy that was in place in this fallen world. And it's saying Jesus, Jesus subdued it and he is king over it. 
And what's absolutely crazy is that there's many people who are claiming to be Christian that don't even believe in this stuff. And Paul is saying that it's one of the primary purposes of Christ and his church is to demonstrate to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God, which is the gospel. Back to verse nine and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Listen to the description of his rule and reign, that he might fill all things. I mean, what does that even mean? It, it, it literally means that there's nothing untouched by the rule and reign of Christ now. He ascended and fills all things. So this is a picture of a dominant, victorious, reigning warrior king. I recently saw the Lion King and it's like Mufasa said to Simba, everything the light touches. Well, because of the cross and the resurrection, the, the light touches everywhere now. Jesus, that all of that is his, is his kingdom domain. Earlier in Ephesians, again, kind of a glimpse backward, verse 22 of chapter one, Paul says, and he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. I mean, trying to prepare for this message and describe to you the scope of Christ's victory and the scope of Christ's reign, it, it's actually staggering. It's difficult to form into words. And it appears all over scripture. I mean, if this wasn't enough, what I've shared so far, listen to the description of Christ's return in Revelation and just listen to the supremacy and dominance of King Jesus here. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp word with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Stunning picture. And I'm not even gonna to claim to fully understand all of it. And in some ways, I think this picture of Jesus can be a little much for soft Western culture or coffee table Christianity. You know, this, this little cute Jesus that so we sort of have in our lives to bless us. But this is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the, the Jesus that the Bible presents to us, a conquering, ruling, reigning supreme king. And that Jesus in ascending to heaven led captivity captives, captive. And here's what John Christ's disciple saw in his vision of heaven. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew the trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Ah, our victorious forever king. I hope your heart sees it. I hope your heart welcomes his reign in your life, his reign in your heart. C.S. Lewis is a uh, you know, famous writer, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series. He wasn't always a follower of Jesus. A actually, after seeing the horrors of World War I and reading the works of atheistic and theistic uh, philosophers, he converted to theism 
1929, which is basically the idea that there is a God and he sort of wound up the universe like a toy and set it off and has really no interaction with it. It's really not the God of the Bible. But in 1931, C.S. Lewis had a conversation with his friend, another famous writer, uh, Lord of the Rings author J.R.R. Tolkien, and this conversation led to his conversion to the Christian faith. Now, both Tolkien and Lewis loved you know, ancient Roman and Greek mythologies. They both knew them very well. And, and recently before this conversation, C.S. Lewis had actually read a line from the Norse ballads of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I heard a voice cry, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. And his heart was actually deeply moved by the story. And he wondered why, like, why should a 19th century poem about a fictional character move my heart? He, he was kind of wrestling with that. And that was sort of what led up to, you know, his conversation with Tolkien. And, but because of what he'd seen in World War II, he pushed his feelings aside and came to embrace the sad belief that all these stories were exactly that. They were just stories, beautiful stories, but just stories. But in his conversation with Tolkien, he found out that Tolkien had another idea. And it wasn't an idea to him at all. It was a reality. He knew that all these ancient and beautiful stories were just echoes of something larger and truer. They were like signs in the human heart that we as a human race knew of another world somehow that existed and that it would exist again and even now did exist in another realm outside of time. Tolkien knew that the, the myths of the God who died in a sacrificial way but who would rise again and live, were not unconnected to the world of reality and history. For him, they were a reflection of a larger reality that at one time had broken into human history, but only once. So that night, walking on a dark wooded path in a quiet forest with uh, C.S. Lewis, he asked him a question that would change Lewis's life forever. He asked him to consider whether it was possible that this myth might be like a compass pointing to something else that at one time had coincided with history, that eternity might have broken into our time. Tolkien suggested that it had, that the myth of the God who had died and had come to life was an echo of a greater story, the greatest story that has ever been told, that at one time in history, this eternal story had bloomed into reality like a flower breaking through hard desert ground and that it had changed everything forever and ever, brought eternity itself into time. Lewis said he'd never considered that. Tolkien challenged him to consider it, and C.S. Lewis would, and it would haunt him. So I want you to think about what he was wrestling with. Think about how many great epics include a deposed king who is sent away into exile and then returns to restore the kingdom. Think about how many stories and myths chronicle a great battle between good and evil. Why do these themes appear so often in our stories? And I'm not talking about stories written by followers of Jesus. I'm talking about just throughout cultures all over the world, through, you know, in Hollywood and movies and some of the movies and you know, epics we love right now. Why do those themes constantly appear? Tolkien suggested that there's a true version of that story, a real story that's playing out and our hearts know it, that there's a story above all stories. There's a king above all kings. There's a truth above all truths. And Lewis began to see that there is a story above all stories. And eventually he found Christ and became 
in re, at least in recent times, one of the you know, greatest uh, thinkers and, and writers, uh, fictional writers that, that Christianity has known. Jesus is the king above all kings and the gospel is the story above all story and he welcomes us into it by inviting us to make him king and reign supreme over our lives. So we've seen the, the lowliness of Jesus, the supremacy of Christ and his rule and his reign. And finally, the last question is, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? So my third point is sort of just application. I have three, just, it means more than what I'm gonna say, but I'm just gonna give you three thoughts, uh, you know, ways we can respond to this. Number one, imitate his lowliness. Number two, join his kingdom mission as the extension of the supremacy of Christ, the, the message, the word of that goes out to all nations. And then number three, remember the end of the story. So briefly, imitate his lowliness. And I'll just let Paul and the Bible speak for itself when it comes to this, because he spoke to this precise thing. As we consider the lowliness and the supremacy of Christ, Paul calls us to imitation. Listen in Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in, in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he basically preaches what I just preached. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So as you consider Christ's lowliness and his supremacy, we are welcomed to imitate that and to love and serve others in the same way. Secondly, join his kingdom mission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, famously called the Great Commission, but listen how it starts. I think sometimes we pass over this, but it's a repeat of the themes of this message. It says, Jesus came to them and said, this is after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Did you hear that? All authority in heaven and on earth, he says, has been given to me. So if he has all authority, how much is left for the devil and that demonic structure, the demonic hierarchy? How much is left to sin, death, and hell? None authority. Jesus has all of it. And listen to what he says, therefore go. So he, he bases and makes an appeal for his disciples to join him on the mission based on the reality that Jesus has received all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, hey, if, if he's in control and he's, he's sovereign over everything and he has all resources, why should we fear anything to go out into the harvest fields of the world and be on mission with Jesus Christ? So he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what is he saying? Because of my supremacy, go. Because I'm on the throne, go. Spread my kingdom and my message all over the world to every tribe and people and nation and tongue. Okay. Imitate his holiness, join his kingdom mission, remember the end. Remember the end of the story. Why? So that we can be constantly encouraged and emboldened 
to serve the Lord and to walk with Jesus no matter what comes our way. I mean, after hearing everything you've heard, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, that, that he reigns supreme, that all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and all this language. Let me ask you a question and let me ask my own heart a question. Why are you afraid again? Why are we afraid? You know, fear is just, I think it's unbelief in what we're talking about. Fear is the lack of belief that God is in control, that Jesus is king, and that he's ruling and reigning over our lives, his church, and this fallen world, and that he's working out a plan. He's the king of all kings, and we know the end of the story, that he'll make all things new, that he'll wipe away every tear, that he'll bring justice to the world. We know at the end of the story that Christ will return as reigning king and he'll establish his kingdom, that forever kingdom, and rule as a forever king. And I mentioned Hollywood movies and stories. You know, uh, some of you know that you know, my, my, uh, my family is really into Marvel, especially my uh, 24-year-old daughter and 16-year-old son. They're, they're, they're officially card-carrying Marvel, you know, in the Marvel nerd club. Um, and, you know, they're just, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch those stories, you know, as a family. And there's a lot of, I think, gospel pictures in it. it you know, if you've seen the, the movie Endgame where, you know, Thanos, like, wipes out half the universe. Uh, but then, you know, the, the, the Avengers figure out a plan to kind of save everybody. And, and you know, they, they turn back time and all this stuff happens. But, you know, after I watched the movie the first time, it's just different when I watch it the second time. Because I know how it ended, Right? And so all the, all the anxieties and fears, how, this, how is this going to turn out? And is this person, you know, are they going to come back? Is this person going to, are they dead in the Marvel universe? Are they going to stay dead and, and all this? It's like all those fears are just kind of gone because I've, I've seen the movie. I've seen the end of the movie. So I, this scene doesn't affect me the way that it would have when I saw it for the first time. You and I have read the Bible. You and I have looked at some verses today that tell us about the reign of Jesus and where this is all going, that ought to affect the scenes of your life. When we face trouble and trial, financial trouble, financial trial, when we face uh, you know, health, health uh, issues and, and pains and we face grief and loss, wait, hold up. Yeah, I've, I, I've seen the end of the movie. I know this, I, I know how this one ends. And therefore, I am comforted and therefore, I am encouraged. And so as we consider the lowliness of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and his kingdom reign, it should be a constant source of deep encouragement for us. And that is why we are unshakable. That is why we stand on a firm rock. And that's why we are anchored because we know that our king lives. And as it says in Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And he works all things for the good, Romans 8 for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. So be comforted, be encouraged, and certainly worship King Jesus. Welcome him into your heart today as we consider his supremacy. God bless you. I hope you're encouraged like I am today as we've looked at this text in Ephesians. And until next time, Jesus is enough. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.